Welcome to part two of the 12th episode of In Plain English and the last episode of season one. As a reminder, we have been discussing the paper, Why Most Published Research Findings Are False by John Ioannidis, with our expert Vera Thornton and our guests Hannah Waterhouse and Doris Minerding. In Plain English will be back on the first Tuesday of October with brand new episodes for the second season of our podcast. Be sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at In Plain English Sci, and subscribe to our podcast on Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts so that you never miss an episode. With all that out of the way, on to part two of this discussion. All right, so kind of kind of moving on to the corollaries. All right, so we've made this argument for we really need to think about pre-study, prior probability. We need to think about bias. We need to think about testing by independent teams. So what's kind of the corollaries of having raised this concern? So corollary one, the smaller the studies conducted in a scientific field, the less likely the research findings are to be true. Thinking back to our discussion of, say, like, you know, the coin flip, if you only do 10, if you get like outlier results, it's it's going to be harder to tell that those are truly an outlier versus if you do a hundred. Does that corollary make make sense? Yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And you touched on that too with talking about like the power of a study as well. So yeah, you know, again, there, you know, maybe your concern isn't the false positive, but if you know a field constantly has very small study sizes, you might be throwing a ton of money at research and no individual study actually has the power to find the effect you're looking for. Yeah. And then at the end, he mentions, um, you know, a field like cardiology, where you might have several thousand subjects versus a molecular predictor sort of study that has quite small sample sizes. So I imagine certain fields, it's just hard to get large sample sizes, which is kind of just a hurdle that they are constantly having to figure out to have good research. Yeah. And, and, you know, again, I think, um, you know, and people who work in some of those areas, like, yeah, specimens can be rare and precious, and maybe you're just not going to get a lot of specimens and, or, you know, mice to include in your study or people who happen to have a very rare disease. And, you know, you need to come up with a way of working with that. But I think, I think some, some people might even go to argue, you know, maybe, maybe this whole null hypothesis testing framework just isn't the way to go with some of these scenarios. And we need to think about them in a different way, or we need to, you know, we need to just interpret the findings from such a study with the knowledge that, you know, we just don't have as many, you know, subjects in this and, and the things we find are going to be a little more exploratory and a little more like maybe suggestive as opposed to conclusive. Yeah. And maybe that would be for more like new studies as well, I guess, just starting out on new question. Yeah. And, you know, for anyone who's, who's listening to the podcast and going, oh no, what if, you know, I don't have this extensive background in statistics to sit here and, you know, analyze or, you know, think this through, but again, just, you know, knowing that when you see a study that's a very small number, just, just know that that might be a little bit less conclusive and, and keep that in mind while you're thinking about it. That's something, you know, going in and seeing how many participants were in study is something that, you know, anybody could go in and do. I kind of liken it to when I go shopping and I look at reviews. If there's four reviews, I ignore it. If there's a thousand reviews, then I'll take a closer look at the product. Yeah, that's a, that is a great example from real life of saying when we have a whole lot of samples of what people thought about this product, it's much, it's a much more reliable result. 
All right, so corollary two. The smaller the effect sizes in a scientific field, the less likely the research findings are to be true. I didn't quite understand that one, Vera. You know, I think in a lot of cases, you know, we're going out and we're searching for is something about this field true? And a lot of the time you can measure that and say like, are two groups different? Well, they could be really different or only sort of different. And we'd say the one case where they're really different is a big effect size. The case where they're only sort of different, well, okay, maybe it's real, but it's very small. And you know, if you think if I'm going out and looking for something, what's gonna be easier to detect? Something that's big or something that's small? So again, when interpreting the study, you have to take a look at that difference. Okay. Yeah, you're you're and again, if yeah, if they're finding something like this is a big effect, that's probably pretty easy to detect. And you know, you can feel a little more confident versus if they're like, we measured thousands of people and we found that this group deviates ever so slightly, you know, that's a little bit more mm. and you know, something that I can run into when you're working with very, very big samples actually is again sort of this null hypothesis significance testing paradigm. You can end up with cases where you get results that are statistically significant, but they're very, very, very small. And a question you sometimes need to ask yourself is, okay, so we got statistical significance and we, and we ran off to the publisher and everything was great, but is this difference big enough for anyone to care about? You know, imagine if someone comes out with a new drug, it's very expensive, it's, it's kind of, it causes some unpleasant side effects. And they're like, look, it's statistically significant. The patients lived longer when they're taking that drug. And yes, over thousands of patients, patients taking the drug lived three hours longer. This is not any actual drug, but this kind of thing can happen. And like, it's real, it's statistically significant, it's there, but it is it, you know, do we, do we care? You know, this is, even if it's totally true, it's still, do we really care? Yeah. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense as well. And I think in the paper, he gave an example of like the impact of smoking on cancer is something with like a big effect or a large effect. And then the, it was like the genetic risk for a disease might be like a, something with a small effect. Yeah, and that's tougher tougher to detect, tougher to be sure that we're finding something real. All right, so corollary three, the greater the number and the lesser the selection of tested relationships in a scientific field, the less likely the research findings are to be true. Yeah, so this one I had more of a, a problem with, and that's because it relied a lot on that R variable, which I was struggling with, so... Yeah. So now that we talked about R, we kind of see why, oh, there's already, you know, if I'm coming into a field and, you know, there's already a low rate of true things to find, even if I conduct an experiment, I get a, you know, statistically significant result. Still, the probability that that's a real thing is less than in a field where there's lots of true things. Yeah. And in addition, it also kind of gets into that idea of multiple, multiple comparisons, too, that if I'm testing a whole bunch of different relationships, I need to control for my multiple comparisons. But then, again, that's assuming I'm, I'm the only one testing right now and not the whole field is testing something. A good example we saw kind of, you know, when um, COVID was very new, there were a lot of scientists were sort of just throwing every single drug 
known to anybody at it to kind of see what might be effective. So again, you get that perfect set of, you know, lots of different teams are trying this and, you know, really, you know, this is some random drug that's, it's not even an antiviral, you know, really what's the prior probability that that's going to be effective. And, and yes, absolutely test them. But we saw a lot of really notable sort of false positive results come out of that where like a single paper said, wow, this drug might work. And then, you know, later it was refuted, but Still, you know, I think people still saw that finding and, and put a lot more stock in it than perhaps they should have if they had read this paper. Is that how bleach and uh, horse tranquilizers became um, well known? Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, they're absolutely, there was a paper that they tried ivermectin for COVID and you know, I think the methodology was a little questionable. And, but again, everyone was trying everything as they should. So even without questionable methodology, like, yeah, okay, okay, we got a positive result. But, you know, kind of taking this context, you don't want to rely on that until you've seen a couple more papers, you know, exploring that. And then, and then also possibly looking into what on earth is the mechanism for that. Again, if you're testing something where you have a good idea of what the mechanism would be, that kind of increases my thought that maybe this really is real versus if I'm just testing every possible drug I can get my hands on, that's that's a low prior probability. So it almost seems like if this were the case, it's it's almost anecdotal. It's like, oh, my friend tried this and it worked, so it must be true. And it's like, well, maybe we need everyone to try it and see how true it really is. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like there's there's findings where it's like, yeah publish it, but it's more of a suggestion of this could be a direction to go, or this should get further testing, as opposed to definitively this is true. All right, corollary four, the greater the flexibility in designs, definitions, outcomes, and analytical modes in a scientific field, the less likely the research findings are to be true. To me, this one makes perfect sense. You want less flexibility, you want very standardized and just leave little wiggle room so that way there's not a lot of variables that are playing into your results. Yeah, and again, you know, that checking the outliers example I gave is, is how you can get in trouble even when you're trying your best but you haven't pre-specified how you're gonna do an analysis. There's, there's just a whole lot of ways that you know, you can go back and be, oh, well, maybe, maybe if I did this or did or did that, or maybe this test is really better. And and again, without anyone intentionally trying to cook the books, you know, especially if someone is trying to do that, you know, a field where there's a whole lot of different methods accepted can give more cover for doing something that's, you know, a little less less uh, above board than you would want. And and again, it doesn't always look like someone is just, I made up data or I manipulated images. Sometimes it's like, oh, well, you know, I tried both the parametric and the non-parametric test. And then I chose the parametric test because it gave me a better p-value. That's you, I, that that's a thing that can happen. And, and again, it's not, and, and a reviewer might not even pick up that that had happened because by the time it's presented, it's like, well, of course we took the parametric test. This makes me think, too, of my experience just doing field work for people that were doing ecological research. And, you know, you can try so hard to have, like, just a standardized protocol and, and all of that stuff, but life doesn't always work out that way. So when we would get out in the field, sometimes in the wilderness, and you come across these certain scenarios where a tree is growing very weirdly and you can't measure it the way you measure all the other trees. And so you have to, you have to have some sort of like flexibility, I guess, which isn't the best for, for a research paper um, to, to figure out how to measure these trees or do we throw them out? Are, you know, 
things like that. And that's hopefully something you would address in your protocol before starting, like you said. But those are the things that make your da- data difficult to interpret. So again, another another reason why pre-specifying, you know, what you plan to do is tough is because you have to think ahead and think about what are all the possible weird scenarios that could that could come up and how am I going to handle those? And that's that can be a very tough thing to do. All right. So corollary five, the greater the financial and other interests and prejudices in a scientific field, the less likely the research findings are to be true. Did this, this one made sense? Yeah. Yep. <laughs> Is there any evidence of like which corollary produces, has the most effect? I mean, are people... Are there more bad designs or is money really what we're talking about? Is money really what's producing these false um, findings? I don't know if there's, I, I think it would vary a lot from field to field. What is, what is the biggest problem? Because there's, there's some fields where there is more money and other fields where there is less and maybe people are more, like you know, climate change. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and that's one where, you know, it's not just money, but it's like political convictions can get wound up in that. Um, you know, so again, you could take all the money out of it and I still bet there'd be a lot of people with very strong opinions about it. Right. And this also makes me wonder sometimes, you, I mean, you, I believe you do actually have to disclose any financial contributions you get, but it sounds like sometimes there are little um, loopholes to that, or like there's some, it's not always disclosed what's going on behind some of the research. Yeah, there can be, there can be loopholes in, um, and, and then just, you know, there is a lot of research that's done by like pharmaceutical companies and, and, you know, maybe some people might look at that and say, oh, that's a good thing. They're pay, you know, they're paying for all this research, but it's still, it still, it potentially shapes what people are doing. And, you know, also kind of the emphasis on just what are we studying and, and how are we looking at it? But I think even, even when it comes down to people, you know, competing for like NIH grant funding, you know, that's, you know, it's public money. It's supposed to be for the public good, but you still see a lot hot competition for that. Is, um, Corollary number five, the the financial and like you said, the competition, the glory, the grants. Is is it more of a problem in the United States or other Western European capitalist countries than it would be in a socialist country? I can actually say it's it's bad across the board. Um, I like you know Europe. There, this is still a problem in science that's coming out of Europe, um, just as much as the U.S. So there are some countries there that are not are not perfectly socialist, but definitely are more socialist than the U.S. And if you want to look, I think uh, Ch- China right now has a very big problem with uh, research. You know, and this this isn't really my. I, I wouldn't say that I'm an expert on research out of China, but there's been a big problem with research that isn't reproducible coming out of China, and again that it's thought that you know, sort of status and hierarchy is probably driving people to push out research and not challenge research. That's bad. And again, not that, not, not that I'm in the best position to comment on, on culture there, but it's, it's a big problem. You know, so if you wanted to compare to examples that are kind of more explicitly not capitalist, there are some striking examples of when science got tied up with politics in say the Soviet Union or, you know, communist China. 
and with with very disastrous results. So I don't, yeah, I don't really know that like capitalism specifically is is driving this so much as that it's it's human nature to want to be right. Power in general, yeah, yeah. Yeah, power. Corollary six, the hotter a scientific field with more scientific teams involved, the less likely the research findings are to be true. Yeah, I mean, what I got from that one is like, you know, there's a there's a speed or a sense of urgency that can influence some of your studies and he mentioned like the proteus phenomenon which was like oh gosh what was it like rapidly rapidly like extreme research claims and and then you'd get like opposite ones that will refute that and it's just like kind of like evolving quickly and going all over the place and it's like what is true no one knows we're all rapidly trying to figure it out yeah Yeah. And, you know, so, you know, we talked about, you know, when there's multiple teams, you get published from the one team that did happen to have a positive finding, even though everyone else has negative findings. And, and yes, also where you get teams that are, you know, working and they're, you know, again, perhaps they're locked in this struggle and they're, you know, no, their research is terrible. We gotta, we gotta refute that. Um, But then if, you know, the public is sitting back here saying, wait, what is, what is the actual result? You know, and what I'd say is, well, that's just that's a field where we're actively in the process of figuring out what's true. But any, you know, if you take any one of these journal articles in isolation by itself, that's not going to give you the whole picture. And it's going to look like there's this constant reversal of of what's been found. Yeah. Another thing I thought about, too, was just like the field that you are particularly reading research about. Like That's something to consider, I guess, when you're reading various new findings and he talked about a lot of for the field or for this field or whatever. Um, so I, I gathered from that, like that genetic research in general can be trickier. It's like hard to get like big findings out of like genetic research in general. And yeah, I guess that's for just a, a common everyday person. Like you might not know that. Um, and like, I, I don't necessarily know which fields are going to have like more likely to have big conclusive evidence than than other fields, you know. You know, again, that's one where it's very tough because you see these papers coming out sounding really authoritative and you don't have that context to kind of put into it. I think let's see, in two since two thousand five, you know, genetics and, and we're is still actively working on getting bigger and bigger cohorts and sequencing more and more of the genome to overcome this. But I think especially, you know, especially at the time this paper was written, there was a lot of work where they would sort of be, let's look at this gene. Let's look at that gene. Oh, wow, this gene causes everything. And then a lot of that work was failing to replicate. And, and it really wasn't until they started to get bigger data sets that things got better. Something, actually a paper that came out at WashU recently was kind of doing the same thing, but for neuroimaging studies where they'll sort of, you know, they'll put a bunch of people into the MRI and look at all these regions of their brain and be, ooh, this one is a little different when we associate it with this. And this one, you know, the the cingulate cortex is associated with with all these different things. Again, that he sort of did some, some work and it ended up suggesting that, you know, you really need at least like about a thousand people before you can get those findings and be confident in them. And that there had been a lot of much smaller studies that now, now we sort of need to go, maybe, maybe we will, maybe we'll go do a bigger study. Yeah. Now that you say that, I feel like I remember reading about that a while back and yeah, it's really, really cool. And I'm glad they figured that out. 
And while talking about this, I just remembered too, a few years back, I participated in a study. It's with the NIH and it's called like All of Us is, is sort of like their name for it. And so I gave a few vials of blood and they're, you know, analyzing my genome, I guess. And I think there's, you know, the goal is to get a wide variety of people from various genders, classes, races, et cetera, um, backgrounds. And yeah, they'll have like a huge uh, sample size, I guess, <laughs> to analyze. And I think there's a lot of like data sharing and people can, different researchers can access that data. And I actually was in all of us too. And yes, oh, the goal nice. is getting, yeah, no, it's a great study. And yeah, the goal is to not only get a bigger sample, but also a more diverse sample because, you know, this is, again, perhaps this is another podcast about genetics, but really a lot of the genetic research we have now has been done in people of European descent. And that's kind of a problem because, you know, some of these can't, these genes we've identified, maybe, maybe they only are work that way in Europeans and we haven't figured it out for anybody else. So that's, that's kind of an equity issue with some, some genetics findings. I did notice that um, I always get these research, you know, would you be interested in doing the participant in this research study from WashU? And the one thing, you know, like they'll offer you money per hour or whatever. And the one thing I was going to recommend if you guys are doing research is to offer to get these people to the, uh, to the clinic, because they think that it would make your study much more diverse if um, people had a way of getting there versus, you know, having to have a car. Yeah. That's another good example of how bias can creep into your study. Even, even when, you know, you in your lab, you're doing everything right, but well, you know, how did, how did your subset of patients end up in your study at your lab? And yeah, if you don't think about, you know, if you don't carefully think about these things, you can end up with, you know, looking back and being, wow, all of our, all of our patients seem to be, you know, pretty well off. And, and generally people who participate in studies are, you know, financially better off, typically are doing better employment wise, because that's how you have the ability to, you know, show up and participate in studies. Also, actually, actually tend to be healthier, tend to be more, more on top of their health in the first place. You know, if you think about the sort of person who says, oh, wow, you know, monitoring for healthy heart, of course, I want to be part of that. <laughs> and, and it can actually, it can be quite hard to get a representative study sample. In the study, they talk about these like meta-analysis um, sort of studies. And I just, I remember learning about that in the past. And that is essential. Is that where you take a bunch of research and analyze their results? And then a lot, you take a lot of research from the same sort of question and analyze it and see if you can get a more bigger picture result out of that. Is that how that works? Yeah, that's that. No, that's a pretty good description of what a meta-analysis is. You typically you do a pretty structured literature review to try to make sure you identify all the possible studies. You know, again, so that you don't just happen to get the ones that you know of because they're from your local university, and then you pull the results together. And it can be a really powerful method. However, you know, it's vulnerable to well, you know, if bias crept in in the way people were doing these studies. You know, if it's kind of consistent across the field, your meta-analysis might pick that up rather than refuting it. 
Um, additionally, if you're limited to, say, published research, you run into that problem of, well, what about the studies people did that maybe didn't get published for some reason? Um, and I've actually seen meta-analyses where they made an attempt to identify, like they'd go and they'd search for like people who did poster presentations or something, but then never published a paper. And they actually did an attempt to try to get some of that data that had been sort of lost and bring it into the meta-analysis. There's, there's actually, there's kind of a distinct sort of plot you can make in a meta-analysis called a funnel plot. And it's one where you, you plot along the x-axis, you put the effect size of the study, and along the y-axis, you put the number of subjects in the study. And what you usually see is the effect sizes are kind of all over the place when the study number, when there's small numbers of participants in the study, you know, sort of like we'd expect, it's harder to, to kind of outliers have a bigger effect when there's very few subjects. And then you see it kind of getting more and more tight as you increase the number of subjects. And what you'll see when you make these plots in some fields is that half of the funnel seems to be missing and it's the negative result half. And so you can make a plot like this and that can be a, a sign that there's potentially bias has slipped into that field either through how people are conducting the studies or maybe not reporting results of negative studies. And then another thing I, um, I was telling my dad about this paper that I was reading, and he, he said, well, don't a lot of these um, you know, research groups have someone who specializes in you know, analyze, like maybe you study genetics and you know a lot about genetics, but you don't know a lot about analyzing your research. And obviously... You have to learn some of that when you're going into these fields, but to have someone who specializes in scientific statistical analysis to help, you know, with that process and how, how does that work? Kind of can depend on the lab. Um, I'd say the lab I'm working in right now, yes, there's, there's some people I can go to with questions who have, you know, have done, a, you know, not just the undergrad in math, but also a full PhD in math. I, I don't know, Jamie, who, who did you go to consult for statistical questions? Vera, I did. I, I had a stats question about the grant I'm submitting. My lab is very small as it just started like two years ago or a year and a half ago. And we do not have a statistics expert in the lab. There is a statistics expert in our department, but I don't know them as well. And I was like, hey, Vera knows things about math. Um, so sometimes there is a person and sometimes you're either doing like like PhD students have to learn how to do basic statistics and how to like do the proper analysis because um, that it goes a long way towards making sure that the result you're getting is consistent with reality is doing the right kind of analysis but there's a lot more to know and sometimes like I found out when I was talking to Vera a couple of different ways to analyze data luckily that did not produce different results this time, I analyzed my data both ways and it produced consistent results. But I think Vera mentioned earlier, analyzing data one way could produce a favorable result and analyzing data another way could sometimes produce a unfavorable result to the researcher. And this can introduce bias if they decide to just go with the favorable result and not report that they did these other analyses. So for some studies where they're really trying to, you know, maybe sometimes really big studies that have a lot of support, like they will, they'll have a, like a statistical analyst to do the analysis. And in some cases, even who has been like blinded to certain, you know, like what are, you know, maybe what's the desired versus the undesired outcome or something like that. But I'd say it's not, 
it's not like consistent that every paper has had somebody with a lot of statistical background consulting on it. Something I'll actually do, which, you know, I realize a lot of, a lot of people who haven't been in science might not think to do this is, you know, every paper, there's that list of authors. And especially if I'm reading a paper that's in a field that's a little newer to me, I'll actually go and put those names into Google and see who are these people. So say, you know, especially for like the senior author, that's the last name in the list of authors is usually the person who's kind of really big picture directing and overseeing the research. So I might put their name in and see like, do they have a background in this area that seems like they would have the knowledge to, to do research? And again, not that people from outside can't do research, but I might look to see, you know, okay, maybe they're outside their field a little bit. Do they have any of the other authors who might know a bit about the field that they've brought in? And again, sometimes you'll see, you can look at those author names or also affiliations. Sometimes you'll see somebody who's with like a department of biostatistics or something like that. And I kind of take that as a good sign that yes, these authors did get a lot of advice, like especially for a stats heavy paper where it's really relying on the analysis. I might look to see, did somebody with a statistics background sign off on this? So maybe I don't understand every single detail, but I have a little more of a warm fuzzy that somebody understood every single detail. You know, I realize another another term that often comes up here that I actually haven't introduced yet is, again, there's actually there's a name for this practice of sort of trying different analytical techniques until you get a result you like, and it's called p-hacking. And again, it's assuming this framework of null hypothesis significance testing and getting that p-value is your biggest goal. And I would say p-hacking kind of occurs when someone is choosing their analysis steps because they think it's going to give them a significant p-value. That can happen, you know, when they run the test, they get a result they don't like. They say, maybe, maybe I should have, maybe I should have gone and run the other test, you know. And and even if you're not going that far, you know, you still can sort of have an intuition of, yeah, maybe if I drop that outlier, I would get a significant result. And you know, again, that it can be, I think the example I gave of the sort of selective correcting of outliers would be an example of kind of unintentional p-hacking, but it's absolutely something that people people fall into doing. I think Doris had a, a great question. Well, so, you know, okay, so this paper came out and perhaps I don't necessarily follow all of this mathematical argument. Have people, you know, done anything in response to this paper? And has it has it changed anything? So we talked a little bit already about that, you know, there's pushes for this and that. And I don't know if it was a hundred percent because of this paper, but I definitely think this thinking was was part of it. There was a big effort undertaken in psychology to replicate a large number of you know, major, major findings in psychology. So it's called Estimating the Reproducibility of Psychological Science. And they did, it was a hundred studies that they did replications of. And from their abstract, I think something like 97% of the original studies had a statistically significant result. And then after they did these replications, 36% of the replications had a statistically significant result. And this was a very big deal in the field of psychology when this came out. Um, because, you know, like the whole field had been going forward on, you know, oh, this effect is real. This effect is real. We should, you know, pay attention to this thing. And just a lot of it did not stand up. And, you know, so some people would look at this and say, oh, well, that's because it's it's psychology. But it's like, well, well, what other fields have volunteered to do something similar on this magnitude? Was it because the models that they were, I mean, that, that was a question I had in my head was like, 
we talk about you have to have a set design to and you know your models what if the model itself is faulty and so like you're trying to replicate something but if everybody's replicating with the same model see with model are you kind of going at like kind of the way they're conceptualizing the experiment yeah more kind of big picture like that um i mean you know yeah the the way you ask your question is going to greatly affect the results you get um you know if you set up you know, again, just sort of what do we consider to be worth asking questions about? What questions do we include on, say, a survey? You know, the way you you do, you know, you set that up is going to give a context and it will influence what you're able to find and, and what your results look like. I would say for the replication study, in a lot of cases, they took the exact same methods that the original researchers had used. So in terms of like big picture conceptualizing about, say, the way that, you know, the brain and personality and, and psychology work, they probably were kind of in the same, you know, sticking to the same thing as these original researchers. So I would say what they were finding finding were more things of, again, that, you know, this study got published, but it was, it was just the, you know, the lucky chance where you got, you know, you tossed your coin all day and you got heads, but it was still a fair coin and, and you thought you found something. Um, so probably were, you know, and I think, I'm trying to think if they, I don't remember off the top of my head, if they went through and like categorized why they why they thought each study failed. In a lot of cases, even when they did, you know, get a positive finding, the effect size was much smaller. So they also had a lot of studies where, again, that this happened to be the one where they found a really big effect. And then when you do it again, it gets smaller. There were also some practice, you know, again, practices in the field that were, were making it easier to get false positive results. Um, people used to have a practice of kind of you would do instead of predetermining how many participants you needed in your study and sticking to it, they'd sort of get their, their, their participants say, Oh wait, we're not quite significant yet. Get a couple more participants. You know, and again, that's sort of like the example of, well, I fix it when it's wrong, but then I leave it be when I think that it's right. What would you want to see from research in general going forward to sort of make it more transparent or reliable, like based off of what you've read in this paper? I would think that that open science registry would be a great start where everybody knows. I, and I understand people not wanting to share everything that they're doing. Um, and yet I find that it would help people to collaborate. And I think that is, I think our model is we're not, we're so competitive. And I just really feel that collaboration is something that's very important. And I hope that we see more of that in the future. I think that's great too. I, I mean, a lot of like with the corollaries we went through, there's a lot of things where it's like, you're just trying to do your best and you make mistakes sometimes with your sample size is hard to acquire or you're, you, you don't or see certain things. And those are just honest mistakes and it's hard to do good research sometimes. But then there's certain biased aspects that I think there is a lot of control over and doing some honest analysis of that before you get started or, or just like making that less okay in the scientific community and having some more like regulation in place. The registry is a, is a great thing. And yeah, so that would be great. And yeah, just getting getting the money aspect to, to be less of a influence. Yeah. 
would be awesome. And like you said earlier at the beginning, more accessibility to this research for people would be great too. Like one thing is making it easier to public, you know, sort of put things out there and somehow indicate that this is very preliminary. You know, perhaps we don't have to always adhere to this really stringent, you know, there will be a p-value or else. And also, also allow for, you know, maybe embrace the, the null results a little bit more. Again, might be to tie more of the, you know, more of the prestige to you asked a really good question and then you answered it as opposed to you found the result that we were all expecting you to find. Well, thank you all for joining us on the 12th episode of In Plain English and the last one for this season. Um, I was really happy to have you all here for this discussion. Yeah, thank you so much for having us and thanks for having us on your final episode. There will be more. Of the season, Um, of the season. Yeah, there there will be more (laughs) regular episodes will resume in October. And I'm really excited about the couple that I have lined up so far. We have been discussing the paper, Why Most Published Research Findings Are False, by John Ioannidis, with our expert Vera Thornton and our guests Doris Minerding and Hannah Waterhouse. As always, you can find this paper for free to download on our website at inplainenglishpod.org. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at plainenglishsci. That's P-L-A-I-N-E-N-G-L-I-S-H-S-C-I. Make sure to subscribe to In Plain English on Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts so that you never miss an episode. And you can become a supporter of this podcast on Patreon. Thanks again for listening and tune in in October for the first episode of season two of In Plain English. Thank you.